Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. Turkey's President Erdogan is one of those resilient leaders who is often down but never out. His country's inflation rate is nearly 75%. The currency is in freefall. The economy is in deep trouble. He's abused his political opposition, suppressed domestic liberties, squeezed migrants, and attacked Kurds in Turkey and elsewhere. Just a few months ago, Erdogan was isolated and largely ignored. He was on President Biden's no-call list. He had almost hostile relations with most of his neighbors. He was being denied new Western weapons systems. Armed conflict with Greece over Eastern Mediterranean oil and gas seemed possible. And his armed interventions in Libya and Syria were going badly. Fast forward to the recent NATO summit and the image of Biden and Erdogan holding a joint press conference with the American president praising Erdogan's, quote, leadership, unquote, and countries scrambling to seek Erdogan's favor. What happened? Answering that question and understanding Erdogan is critical in a world where NATO and Russia are squaring off, even if Ukrainians are doing the fighting. Michael Salin was Sweden's ambassador to Turkey, among other countries, and is an acknowledged expert on defense and foreign affairs in Turkey, Europe, and Central Asia. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much. Let me start with a very simple question. Is President Erdogan good or is he just lucky? Good or just lucky? <clears throat> well, it depends on good for whom, uh, of course, and uh, luck is a relative term. Uh, I have been amazed so many times, I've been following him so long, that he has this uh, strange ability to land on his feet like a cat falling uh, from a from a high-rise building in, in various ways. Uh, I have also been amazed at his skill in maneuvering and in, brink, in brinkmanship, uh, such that, um, to the surprise of many, me included, he tends to scare off opposition uh, last minute in, in, in various instances. So that um, uh, leaving aside for the, for, the, for the moment whether it's good or not, because that's a relative term, obviously. Luck, if I, if I look back on all, all his adventures, that could have ended badly, and they still can end badly, because the net result isn't there yet in terms of domestic policies and also, uh, uh, and especially foreign policies with the strong hand uh, policies in all those countries, uh, from Libya to Nagorno-Karabakh, let's say. So um, I guess that uh, it's a combination of daredevilness and and also luck in a way because some of the moves need not have ended well temporarily at least as as they have but somehow uh he has a way of having people uh, bow out of opposition last minute because of his uh, his um, well his brinkmanship of sorts so i would uh, try to conclude an answer to that broad question by saying that as far as i am concerned uh, he has been a, a mixture of, of luck and, and uh, skilled brinkmanship 
tending to be able to outmaneuver uh, opposition whenever uh, the need arises in various ways. It doesn't need, need to be that way forever because we have, after all, a decisive election uh, coming up soon, whether it be already in the, in the fall, as some speculate, but re- re- statutorily it will be June next year at the latest. And then, of course, the question of can someone stay in power with an economy being what it is now and all other negativities, again, referring to good or bad, but his reign has not been good for a majority of Turks, if you ask me. But he has, still has a following, he has a base, and um, many tend to be a little bit proud at his uh, uh, way of... Uh, Daring things, uh, promoting the image of Turkey as a big regional power, at least. Uh, like now, for example, many, including from the opposition, uh, admire uh, a bit that he, was, he went to uh, Madrid and achieved many things, uh, but with uncertain results. So it's a mixed bag. Let's come back in a few minutes to this connection between his foreign policy adventures and his domestic situation. Yeah. Um, but I want to start with the Ukraine war. He has amazingly succeeded thus far, of, although he's a member of NATO, Turkey's a member of NATO. He's managed to position his country not as neutral, but as engaged with both sides. Mm. On the one hand, he's selling weapons to Ukraine and he sits in NATO planning meetings. On the other hand, he's refused to sanction Russia. Uh, trade still flows through the Bosphorus. Uh, he's kept Turkish airspace open to the Russians, so forth and so on. Mm. He's even offered to try to solve the grain problem, although I noticed his foreign minister offered to take a 25 percent discount if he did. Uh-huh. So he's getting his bargaining a little bit out of sorts. But yeah. what is Erdogan's end game? do you think, when it comes to Ukraine? Uh, I think his end game is trying to um, to handle the the downsides of Ukraine in various ways and turn it bravely into an upside thing, an advantage, by uh, presenting himself as the savior of international peace, by uh, freeing, freeing himself from or to a role of mediator, such that uh, for the West, uh, it will be seen in the end to be an indispensable tool for a peaceful settlement of, of the Ukraine crisis. Uh, and uh, in that sense, uh, achieving tolerance from the West, from NATO, uh, for things that he is doing, which are not uh, entirely NATO compatible in various ways. I'm referring to sanctions and uh, other ways. Using uh, history and geography and uh, a tendency of, of skills to balance things, to have a sort of balancing act which is translated by Western countries as a net resource that could be useful. But it doesn't last. And I'm wondering myself, how long can it last to keep this? Because it depends also on the, on the, um, on the dynamics of, of the war itself. But now you have the, the, two, the, dub, the key questions. You have, when I say geography, I mean being a big power at the Black Sea sitting at the Bosporus and, and the Dardanelles and the, the Straits and therefore the outlet militarily and in terms uh, such a key now of, uh, of um, supplies of, of grains to the needs of the world. 
and therefore seen to be a potentially indispensable factor in whatever uh, settlements that may be achieved now over this and over the uh, war itself. So it's a strange game of um, seeing to it that uh, he's not going far enough uh, against the Russian interest uh, to, uh, to antagonize them, still doing things uh, with Ukraine, selling drones and what have you, and about closing the Dardanelles to uh, foster the ideas in the West that we cannot, we cannot move on Erdogan right now. We cannot um, antagonize him because he may be too value and, uh, valuable an asset. But it, uh, it's uh, always conditional upon developments and it's a high-risk game. So it, it's a mixed bag again. Uh, it is also, though, enormously skillful uh, in the sense, put aside morality, put aside, again, good or bad, normative judgments, clearly skillful that he's able to engage both sides, give some to each. He, he's like a kid that colors outside the lines all the time and gets away with it, is admired for his coloring as opposed to condemned for not staying within within the lines. Yeah. Um, but he wants to get paid. And, and the payment can be in lots of different currencies. So let's start with one of those, which, of course, is what just recently happened at the NATO summit, where at the very last minute, of course, he acquiesced to Swedish and Finnish uh, membership in NATO. Not at all clear who agreed to do what, but it's quite clear that he, he thinks he got a lot for that agreement. What is your understanding of what happened uh, at the Madrid summit in, in terms of this question of accession? I, I would like, though, to, to comment on that by reminding us that in terms of Ukraine, it is the mixed bag also having been acting militarily in Libya, in Syria, in all those countries without, um, without any sort of specific uh, NATO role in it. So it's the 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 inheritance is is very much of uh, of unilateral Turkish moves, and and NATO tolerance of those for uh, for want of alternatives to to tolerate uh, tolerate those. But there are so many uh, unsolved things uh, hanging in there. On this specific case, uh, my um, take on it is uh, one of uh, wondering wonderment that it that it worked. Um, and now that I see that Erdogan only yesterday uh, surprised uh, many and disappointed uh, certainly the Swedish government and, uh, and that of Finland by adding new dimensions to what was supposed to have been agreed in that written three-page paper. Uh, when I read that paper, I found it uh, an extraordinary case of, of uh, diplomacy where one side, Turkey, is pressing on for specificities and the other side, Finland and Sweden, are trying to guard with, with uh, all sorts of strings uh, to make it less specific and less, therefore less binding, because that would be so difficult to handle politically. We, we Sweden, after all, are heading for elections now in uh, September, so even that is a, is a factor here in terms of political climate. So uh, this, uh, uh, the things that Erdogan said yesterday when he uh, specified that now we have uh, uh, had Sweden Sweden only promised to extradite uh, 73 terrorists. And that was a big, big difference, uh, both in terms of uh, using the word promise, and uh, if you read the, the, read the, the, the letters of the, 
the ambigu ambiguities of the text, uh, you cannot say that Sweden has promised that, but he said that. And not only that, he, he uh, specified that uh, if Sweden, uh, for example, does not behave in terms of implementing this uh, to the letter in the Turkish understanding, then the government of Turkey will not even send the the agreement uh, or the the case of uh, um, the NATO bit to Parliament for ratification. Uh, I have been afraid of that uh, angle uh, for a long time because I felt that uh, one thing is uh, somehow to let pass in, in Madrid, but the other is a big thing, and there's a history of that too in Turkey. That uh, when things come up in Parliament, then it's uh, it's uh, it's hostage to the domestic dramatic politics of Turkey and uh, all sorts of things can happen, like in the case of, of uh, the intervention in the Iraq at the time, 2003, you remember that. So um, for me, it was strange to hear, um, to read the text. Uh, it was strange that Sweden and Finland was willing to uh, was to be so forthcoming in, in the formulations, although there were strings attached to, and, and there is... Uh, so, uh, but for the greater good of NATO bid, yes. And it was strange for me to read that uh, that Joe Biden was so praising, uh, as you also quoted in his uh, session with him. And the question also of uh, F-16, whether that was part of the larger deal or not, as claimed by the US, by the way. So for me, it's a, it's a confused picture of what actually transpired and how will whatever transpired be implemented and are we in for a hostile situation now where Turkish interpretations of what uh, what was in that agreement and uh, Swedish and Finnish defenses against such an interpretation will be tumultuous in, in the in the in the months ahead now to your point about the F16s as I'm sure you know the administration does have within its power the ability to provide the upgrades to existing F-16s. Uh, it, I'm not sure it's able to sell new F-16s, never mind the F-35s, and there is a clear opposition to it in, in among the Democrats in the Senate. So one can imagine that this is a bit like buying a rug in the bazaar, that we're in the opening rounds of the negotiation, not the finished rounds of negotiation. So people get up and leave the table a few times and, and we'll see how this goes. Uh, but I go back to the skillful point, um, which is to say... Erdogan himself is uh, describing it as the beginning of a salesman process. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that's the case. I've not seen him say that, but I'm sure, I'm sure that's how they view it. Um, it's not over till it's over and it's and, and it has barely begun. But to be precise, Sweden, in my understanding, would find it extremely difficult to extradite uh, those individuals. It's one thing to pledge not to support the PKK or other groups, whatever that means in very vague terms. It's quite another to hand over people. Hard to imagine that happens. How do I imagine? Well, I I can't imagine imagine it happening because uh, there has been so strong emphasis now on the part of the government, on the part of the Finnish government too, and on the part of uh, consulted uh, legal experts saying that there is no way that uh, Sweden could act beyond this, the the framework of the Swedish constitution and and general law on this. Uh, but uh, that's again uh, what makes this agreement a little bit strange because the 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 uh, 
all the, the wordings uh, showing all this understanding for the sphere, Turkish concerns, etc., et make it appear as we are more or less uh, abiding by, by the Turkish request, and they certainly are describing it such. But at the same time now, one day after, it has become the uh, important role of the government to stress that no, no way that we would uh, ever do something which would be beyond the frames of the law. So there is no change here, they say. They have to say now. But that, of course, then bounces back to the Turkish side, even repeating the request of uh, and, and adding the numbers. And that makes me very worried that uh, we didn't achieve much other than the, uh, the invitee status of Sweden and Finland. But the Turks uh, specifying that, oops, it's not finished yet because we have this uh, ratification thing and... So it's, it's really a, a, a mist of uncertainties. But the Swedish government has to, and not only because we have elections now and, and that, that there are former uh, opposition parties and people against the NATO bid that are seeing that this is good news for them, that uh, this whole NATO business has become prob- problematic because of Turkey. So we have this mixed bag, although there is a strong, I make no mistake, there is a strong majority in parliament for this NATO bid. But it, it has become sort of uh, dirtied a little bit by 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 this uh, this cloud of uncertainty over Turkey. If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org/donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G Foundation.org. So we've talked about the war. We've talked about NATO. Let's broaden that out into foreign policy more generally. Turkey has an incredibly active foreign policy at a moment when lots of countries do not. Beyond Ukraine, there is the posturing with Greece. It wasn't that long ago that it looked like war might be possible. Uh, Active involvement, as you said, in Syria and Libya, Libya. Uh, now rapprochement with Saudi Arabia and Israel. Um, All of that seems, and more, all of that seems to be part of, as you said already once, Erdogan's desire to be a regional, at least a regional power, uh, independent of the West, maybe just independent of 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 everyone. Is that a realistic goal? Is that something that a leader other a turkish leader other than erdogan could aspire to or is it uniquely in his worldview that this is turkey back as a great power is is imaginable on the question of foreign policy um, um there is a sort of a confusion confusing aspect to this which is that if you read for example what the opposition parties have been saying over this uh, nato case and uh, this nato enlargement case uh, to, to take one example, you would see that um, not only the uh, ultra-nationalistic MHP, but also the former MHP part, which is now an independent opposition party, an EU party, good party, Meral Akshan, uh, who was uh, Minister of the Interior when I was ambassador in Turkey, by the way, back in the late 90s, uh, criticizing this uh, agreement from, from the right, so to speak, saying that it was uh, much too little specific uh, 
So I'm saying this as as an example of the way even the opposition parties, either because they cannot withstand the the magnetism of Turkey whenever the Kurdish question comes up, for example, and uh, and on issues relating to Greece or or the Kurdish question, then the opposition is always weakened by by the ownership of the regime in in being the uh, the interpreters of this uh, general strand. And that applies uh, also to, I think, uh, we, we must not make a mistake of it, that even in the unlikely case that uh, Erdogan would lose the next election and would uh, bow out uh, without uh, fuss, so to speak, even in that case, and uh, that therefore other political leaders, uh, notably from the opposition, would take over, would there be a difference I don't think there would be so much difference because, uh, for one thing, uh, politics would be much more unstable, generally speaking, in a sort of a post-Erdogan kind of, because it's so hard to reconstruct stability once it has been sort of uh, kidnapped by by an autocrat, if I may put it this way. And then before you find new stability, and then then you will find for that government to change, uh, to change Tack and and to start withdrawing from Libya or or uh, abstain uh, permanently from incursions into and uh, try to reinvigorate the Kurdish uh, resolution process of a couple of years ago. Uh, I don't see uh, much change uh, immediately as a result of a possible change of government. Uh, but then you might ask also: um, so if Erdogan somehow does uh, is able to win? And I have been claiming for the in my writings for the last uh, uh, year or so that there is only one way, uh, or let's say two ways, in which uh, Erdogan can win legally, and that's uh, after he has fixed the economy somehow, and he has been able to turn his overall foreign policy into a net success, not a net failure, because there are so many risks involved, and those risks uh, are still sort of pending uh, resolution. There is no end result of any kind of policies over Syria, over Libya, over etc. So uh, there are many question marks in this, uh, and um, and I am deeply worried that uh, Turkey, as a result of the elections, would either be sort of stuck in a continued, uh, forever continued uh, authoritarian structure, uh, or, and there is no successor in view, by the way, to keep the structure, and the opposition is saying that they are going to reintroduce the parliamentary system, whatever that means in, in detail, and however they would do that constitutionally. There are many such issues, and I think that uh, all this boils down to um, great uncertainties over Turkish foreign policy regardless, but uh, of course the elections is a, is a key key factor here. You've connected the dots because that's where I was going between foreign policy and the domestic situation. I would agree with you that the most likely way to get reelected in any country is to produce positive economic results. And right now, the Turkish economy is 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 in dire straits. Mm. But you could imagine that whether it's the grain deal, so they get some extraordinary benefit on pricing of grain, which helps on the inflation side, or the Saudi deal, so suddenly there's a flow of, of, of investment, which has not been the case for some time, or the Russians and the Americans 
get into a competitive bidding crisis, it is still a bazaar. And, and that bidding crisis, and whether it's in terms of weaponry or more likely financial aid or investment, uh, you could imagine that the two strands come together in a way that could produce uh, a, a more positive economic, if not outcome, at least perspective. It, it, is that if instead of you, I was talking to President Erdogan, would he say, of course, that's what I'm doing? That That's my intention. You figured it out. Yeah. Well, I guess he would say that. If you, But if you talk to me now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would be uh, I would be saying that uh, I, I'm old enough not to exclude anything, no, especially not if you're dealing with Turkey and their, uh, Turkey and its leader is full of surprises and and uh, upending this year and 180 degrees turns uh, because he has that power to do such turns whenever it suits him. He could, for example, I can imagine a, a, a flow of of steps uh, which would somehow be theoretically at least uh, changing the overall image he he might uh, start to to re, uh, he might decide to restart the uh, resolution process uh, as one newspaper has indicated that are in the uh, that is in the offing with the Kurdish side with PKK even and then uh, interestingly if that were to happen he, he would uh, the sacrifice for that would be uh, then no more then no more uh, alliance with the MHP because they would never buy that. And he would have problems with EU party as well. But he was on, on the verge of doing that, uh, as we know, as you know, uh, in the years of 13, 14, 15. And uh, it came so close, uh, apparently, that they had this 10-point uh, paper the, uh, the, uh, it was ad- adopted by... Uh, trustees of him in in uh, uh, in January 15, but then it appeared uh, that uh, Erdogan was not going to follow through on this because of developments and dynamics in Syria, because the events uh, just preceding that over Kobane and the ISIS attacks on Kobane and the heroic resistance there and making the um, people in Turkey, Kurds in Turkey, being uh, completely uh, coming crazy over his refusal to help the resistance in Kobani, and therefore there were riots in in yeah, southeastern Turkey, and uh, and forty people were killed, and uh, Demirtas was uh, saying sympathetic things, and he is still in jail over that, although whatever he said was legal at the time under this resolution process. So, I mean, the question of legality here is always uh, so interesting. But if in spite of this or because of this, he would decide that there is the only one way that I can sort of start spinning the wheel in a sort of positive direction, and that is to again revitalize, reinvigorate the uh, resolution process, because he knows that he cannot win elections without a certain amount of courageous votes. And uh, you cannot uh, win enough Kurdish votes, uh, no matter how Islamic those votes would be, and therefore somehow uh, preferring AKP. Uh, you cannot win those in sufficient numbers, as you saw in Istanbul in the local elections, by the way, where um, a million Kurdish votes support Dimamolo, in spite of Öcalan's recommendation at the time, inspired by the government, uh, suddenly legalizing that he said something, that they should stay uh, neutral. So, and then you have the question of uh, closing the HDP party or not. 
so I, I think that uh, Erdogan has something in mind. And supposing, Alan, that they would, he would start sort of pulling those uh, strings, knowing that this would uh, ra give rise to immediate praise. You heard what Biden said to, to Erdogan, even over these small things in, in Madrid now. You can imagine what praise he would receive uh, if he were to sort of start moving in the peaceful direction again. Knowing, everyone knowing that uh, it is needed in order to have enough Kurdish votes in order to be able to win the elections. So it not, it's not just the economy, it's also foreign policy net success and the Kurdish vote. So you can imagine that these are things that he might consider. Uh, and if you talk to him, he might say to you in, in the private, uh, although knowing that it's not private, that we are going to do this and this and that and then start sort of spinning a positive um, narrative, beginning with the Kurdish question, for example, and then adding things, hoping that uh, this would somehow change the wheel into some, uh, giving it a positive spin. I don't rule that out, although I, I, on the contrary, I think it's necessary for him in order to be able to win the elections. You make an important point. We in the West tend to think in fairly linear terms, if A, then B, and if you got to B, then you got to go to C. Um, clearly, and it isn't just Erdogan, it is, it, it's a different logic that he can be incredibly aggressive with the Saudis and, and Mohammed bin Salman one day and embracing him the next day. Incredibly enough, yes. And not just get away with it, but have it work to his favor. I saw a German Marshall Fund poll recently, uh, a few months ago which said that almost 60% of Turks see the U.S. as the biggest threat to Turkey's national interests. A few more, almost 63%, believe that European countries want to divide and disintegrate Turkey as they had the Ottoman Empire in the past. And I think, I suspect those, those polling results are probably accurate, that directionally they're certainly accurate, that we don't really understand why he's popular and why he can maneuver the way he can maneuver. Turkey isn't a Western country. It's certainly not a European country. You were ambassador. You lived with Turkey for years and years now. What would most surprise you if we if we had this conversation again a year from now? What would most surprise you? And, and we'd be sitting there saying, did you see what just happened? Well, I, what would most surprise me if that if there had been at that time a, a regular, orderly, peaceful transfer of power from the team Erdogan to something else, to the opposition leaders, and that they would start out with having a, ma a massive uh, um, release of political prisoners uh, that we would call political prisoners that are that are there uh, either because of long pre-detention periods or uh, uh, under sentences which are draconian in any definition because they were sus suspected of Gulenist uh, sympathies, whatever. Uh, that kind of peaceful, uh, normal, back to normal in a way, uh, would be what most would surprise me. I would be delighted too, but I, as you can hear from what I'm saying, I, I, I really can't see that happening because of the many uh, wounds to a society uh, that are created by a period of clear-cut authoritarian rule with massive repression against those that are seen to be of, 
opposition to the to the government, and to have a system wh- where uh, media have been sort of ninety percent dominated by by those close to the regime, where the judiciary is uh, seen by everyone without exception to be completely um, politicized, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's it's so hard to heal such wounds to a society. But in the case of Turkey, it still is not North Korea or even Belarus. It's an, a strange uh, somehow in between. And my fear, therefore, is that the next step uh, from the, the current, uh, some call it majoritarianism, that you, you depend on election wins and you need to win those elections at all costs. But you need that for your basic legitimacy. Uh, and, and therefore, it, uh, power is constantly... Uh, encouraged to be challenged, so, so to speak. But uh, it leaves me with uh, uh, big questions as, as to what can what can the next step be in the in the evolution of of Turkish politics, because you have all these uh, wounds now, some being uh, sort of inherited, some being created by this government. And it's so hard to see how normality. Uh, and I also fear, by the way, Alan, that it could be that the West, for example, would somehow be so afraid of an unstable Turkey that they would they would tend to uh, to think, if not even if not say, that we, we, we have an authoritarian ruling Turkey, but he is our authoritarian, and therefore we prefer, prefer that. You know this expression from other parts of U.S. history. And that, therefore, geopolitics and, and value-based uh, policies will not be uh, be possible to combine in the case of Turkey in a turbulent uh, global situation. Oh, I think, unfortunately, it's quite clear at the moment that the U.S., Europe, NATO think they need the Turks more than the Turks think they need the U.S., Europe, and NATO. Yeah. And that always puts you in a bad bargaining position. Uh, I've witnessed what's happening in, in recent days and weeks. Yeah, and uh, that uh, somehow invites a, a view of what I would call abuse of power by someone who is always the tougher side in a, in a bargaining situation. You have that, um, uh, I usually call this a, a big dilemma. For, for the West. I mean, Erdogan too has a dilemma because he needs the West uh, for its economy, even though he can hope for have, uh, to have Saudi money and the Chinese money and uh, whatever. But he knows that uh, since the economy of Turkey has been, been built by foreign, uh, foreign currency loans in Western institutions, he knows that uh, somehow there must be normalization. Investors from the West need to come back to to Turkey in much, much bigger numbers. And for that to happen, he, he must restore somehow the uh, the uh, image, at least, of rule of law in, in, in Turkey and some some kind of basic stability. So you have all, all those things uh, creating a dilemma for Erdogan because, as you say, uh, he knows, and uh, because he is also the creator of these public opinion polls, I mean, with the perception of the West. as So he knows that uh, if it wasn't for him, those figures would be completely different. But, but this, as a, uh, to be weaponized, it needs to be used with caution because the, he has this dilemma. And for the West, the, the dilemma obviously is that how do you deal with someone that you need uh, geopolitically and strategically, uh, especially now that you have this war situation with Russia 
and uh, you know that you cannot you cannot stampede him into complete obedience to sort of NATO values, but he's useful or indispensable anyway, net wise. Uh, and so, how do you do? Uh, I mean, I, I've been to endless conferences where the question always was: so, how should be the Western position from the EU and uh, individually country in terms of human rights? Would we uh, let down on all those that are suffering from lack of human rights? Uh, but uh, would that be uh, perceived as a sort of active uh, involvement in the in the politics of Turkey? And if not, uh, whatever you do, which is sort of normal or positive, would be seen to legitimize the regime. Big, big dilemma uh, over the EU and the question of uh, membership and uh, all those things, for example. So um, my my best word in describing it is a multidimensional dilemma that we're dealing with in the case of Turkey, because it's so big. And it's so strategically located, and it has now such ruthless uh, or, or tough governance that you need to be dealing with it uh, carefully, like uh, like an explosive device, because otherwise you you can get your nose blooded yourself from being uh, you know not enough careful. Thank you for that. Let's let's leave it there. As you said earlier, the bargaining is ongoing. Yeah. We're near perhaps the beginning and the end, not just vis-a-vis NATO, Sweden, and Finland, but vis-a-vis the larger set of issues that we've been discussing. So that gives us an opportunity to have this conversation again down the road, and and I look forward to it. So thank you very much. I would like to do that very much. And there's so much more to be said about other relationships that Turkey has in the region, Iran, for example, Israel. But that's for next. For next time. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.